Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that Articulate operates on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, Kainai, Pikani, the Sitsina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. If you're new to Articulate, welcome. We are a nonprofit organization that focuses on giving a voice to marginalized and underrepresented youth worldwide. My name is Bonvi, and I'm the founder and executive director at Articulate. Today, I'm joined here by Glennis Abbasi, who will now introduce herself. Hi, my name is Glennis Obasi. I am a 19-year-old student at Western University in London, Ontario, um, originally from Calgary. I connected with Articulate last summer um, over Instagram, and I've actually published a poem on their website, and that is the poem that I'm going to be reciting today, just to give you guys um, sort of an introduction of um, my poem and sort of topics that I discuss in my poetry and what we what we will be discussing throughout the podcast. So I hope you guys are excited and um, take something from it. So the poem is called Confessions of a Dark-Skinned Black Woman. Black Lives Matter. Sorry, my apologies. I meant all Black Lives Matter because with the thousands of analogies deciphering this movement, Somehow the codes got lost in translation, putting black men in focus, blurring black women into silhouettes. Because the currency of a black woman's life does not equate to the currency of a black man's life. Giving us a black life exchange rate of black lives matter equals black men matter and all black lives matter equals black men and women matter. But I'm deeply sorry. Sorry that my blackness and my womanhood not be mutually exclusive identities coexisting since conception in my mother's womb is a nuisance to my existence and my essence. I am deeply sorry that I cannot remove the black from the woman and just be woman or remove the woman from the black and just be black. I am deeply sorry. That me being a black, that me being black and a woman simultaneously is an inconvenience for you, a black man, to humanize me. You scream Black Lives Matter with the same breath that you use to suffocate black women to their deaths. Because for you, protect black women comes with a clause. There needs to be familiarity or desirability. And I have neither. There is no familiarity, for you have no knowledge of my existence, and I lack desirability because the depth of my blackness is not palatable to you. Because your desirability hinges on the darkness of my melanin, and the richness of my blackness is one with that proximity to whiteness. And for these reasons, I cannot rely on you, a black man, for solidarity. Which is why the one who fights for me and the one that I fight for is Black women. So I wrote this poem last summer um, when the Black Lives Matter took like storm and basically exploded and everyone, you know, was sort of learning about Black people existing and the fact that, you know, we matter. And 
I sort of, not I sort of, I was frustrated by sort of the narrative when it came to black women and police brutality, where people sort of thought that because, you know, like, I'm not going to not acknowledge the fact that black men, you know, the numbers for police brutality is higher with black men. That That is not what, that is, you know, not debatable. However, that does not mean that the numbers for black women is negligent, you know, you know, you have Sandra Bland, um, Antonia or Antonita Jefferson. I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing her name. Um, there, uh, I think it's Tatiana Jefferson. I think that's her name. Yes. Um, you know, these are black women that were victims of police brutality and died, you know, and the conversation when it came to black women was just very like, like I said, in the black in the background, which is why I mentioned in my poem that black women sort of became silhouettes and black men were at the forefront. And it's like people were only, you know, sort of spreading the George Floyd or the Tamir Rice or the Philando Castile or the Aragana. And I'm not saying that that is not important, right? I'm not trying to compare. What I'm saying is that the energy given towards, you know, being vocal about black men who were um, victims of police brutality did not match the energy that was given to black women. It was basically almost non-existent, you know, which is why, you know, black women in the States came up with say her name, right. To sort of amplify black women who were victims of police brutality because they were not getting the attention that they deserved. And then I sort of saw where sort of black men were upset by that and, you know, and sort of like upset that people were coming up with the phrase, all black lives matter to include black women and black LGBTQ plus, um, individuals as well and you know a lot of cis gender straight black men were upset with that because they're like oh black lives matter should include everybody and it, sorry black lives matter includes everybody and it should but does it no it doesn't and we see that with the narrative towards black trans black trans lives um and black women and so that's why i wrote this poem and i know i'm referencing black women in this poem but this is for all black people that are not straight cisgender men because they were very they were you know really left out of the conversation and in addition to that there was also cases like um Oluwatoyin Salal may she rest in peace and rest in power who unfortunately was killed at the hands of a black man and I'm not saying that to sort of spread the narrative you know of tainting black men I'm just saying that black men unfortunately are, are a danger to black women Men in general are dating to women because of misogyny and patriarchy and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, instead of the idea of black men sort of not acknowledging the, the role that they play in harming black women and sort of that, it's not just white people, right? They also play a role as being men. And whenever that conversation came around, it was sort of like, there was just so much gaslighting towards black women. And so I just, from that moment, I just sort of became very like, not that I wasn't before, but I just sort of became more of an advocate for Black women. And just, for me, I'm centering Black women. Because when I, Black women include everyone. And so when I fight for Black women, I'm fighting for everyone, not just Black women. But they're going to be the center of my adv advocacy because they unfortunately are always seen as afterthoughts. And, um, you know, they don't get the media coverage as black men or the attention as black men. And so I'm not trying to do a comparison that we see with George Floyd, how much attention that got. Compare that to Brianna Taylor, there was barely any. And Brianna Taylor died 
months before George Floyd, right? And I'm just like, the fact that there was barely any news coverage, not up until after George Floyd happened, it's just sad. It's just sad. And so I try to make sure that I'm putting Black women as the focus of my advocacy because they often are forgotten. And even when it comes to conversation within the Black community, um, they are still forgotten. And so I that is why I make this poetry, sort of like to advocate on behalf of Black women um, in in reference to the Black Lives Matter movement and other, like I said, non-straight, cisgender men. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Glennis, for your wonderful poem and your rationale behind it. It's the perfect start to our conversation today, discussing the hierarchies that exist within underprivileged groups, um, activism, change, and how the future looks, and how youth are at the center of change in our society. So I would like to start our conversation off with a quote from Brene Brown, who says, you either walk inside your story and own it, or you stand outside of it and hustle for your worthiness. And this leads to the theme of today's podcast, which is learning and unlearning. Learning how we can create a society that is reflective of us and unlearning the traditions and norms that hold us back. We will be discussing essential questions about what it truly means to be an activist and how young females like Glennis have taken up art and speech as their weapon against various inequalities. And so, Glennis, if you would like to start us off by explaining a bit about the importance of raising awareness about social justice issues in today's society. Thank you, Bonnie. And um, for me personally, I um, I would say, like, first off, like, be genuine. Um, I feel like, especially last summer, um, there's just so many people who, you know, are posting all sorts of Instagram um, infographics and Black squares and, um, you know, and hashtags about Black Lives Matter, you know, and they honestly did not care. You know, they just did that so they don't, so they don't come up as, you know, not, so they don't come up as racist, you know, or not being an ally, whichever term you choose. And so I think for me, I, I think being genuine about your activism or advocacy is important do it because you actually want to do it and you believe that you're doing the right thing and you believe in what you're fighting for and not because you don't want to seem like the bad guy or, or so and so people are doing it so you want to do it too right and so i got into like you know social justice um grade 10 um and that was just for me you know seeing stuff on the news social media and stuff like that and just getting interested i wanted to read and becoming curious and learning more about um, anti-Blackness and um, the racism surrounding anti-Blackness and stuff, you know, specifically in the U.S. And um, yeah, so that kind of, you know, I had interest in that. And so I think, you know, that is very important because I've just seen so many people who will post stuff about Black Lives Matter and they did not care. And so I think being genuine and authentic is, I would say, number one, like, before you even start, think about it. Like, is this something I actually want to take up? Or am I just doing this because I feel some sort of pressure? And if it is the latter, I would honestly say don't do it, right? Like, activism, social, and, and advocacy is a good thing. But if you're doing it because you think that that is what you should be doing, then don't do it. Honestly, stand stand 
stand in your truth. And if your truth is not being, you know, an advocate for change or an activism activist for it, then stand in that truth. That's your truth. Don't I don't want I don't want you. I would prefer that than you feigning support for Black Lives when in reality you could not care less. Um, and I would say it's important because it. I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure who quoted this, where they said that activism is the rent that you pay for living on this earth. Um, Banvi, if you can help me out, if you know who quoted that, I don't know, but I will look it up as you continue. Um, yeah, but there was a, it was a woman. Um, she said, I think it was adv- activism or advocacy is the rent you play for, is the rent you pay for living on this earth, and that is the way I see it. Um. I understand that I'm in a privileged position to live in this part of the world and with whatever problems I'm facing, I still have privileges. And so I try to, you got it, Bambi? I think she got it. I did get it. And there's two versions of it. Um, So the first one is by Alice Walker, which is activism is my rent for living on the planet. And the other one is by Muhammad Ali, which is service to others is the rent you pay for living on the planet. Exactly. So I leave by those two rules and I try to sort of like pay it forward. I think me being um, an advocate um, is paying it forward and, you know, sort of like being the change I want to be seeing this world and, you know, whatever. I think a lot of people sometimes complain about issues, but then don't want to do anything to change it, right? You're complaining about racism. You're not doing anything to change it. You're complaining about misogyny or patriarchy or sexism or whatever other societal issue there is. And you're not doing anything, you know, to change it. And I don't, I, I kind of don't see the point in complaining when you are not being part, part of the change, you know, and I don't think it's any better. I mean, it's better in the sense of, okay, maybe you're not part of the problem, but you're not part of the change too. And to me, that doesn't really make much of a difference. You not doing anything is not too better than you doing or being part of the problem. And so I think a lot of people, um, I just think a lot of youths, to be honest, think since this podcast is for youths, I think. They sort of like don't care enough, you know, they're sort of very apathetic, you know, they're just like, oh, it's boring, you know, it's 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 too serious or whatever. And I feel like for a lot of people, it's not it's not until they maybe experience some of these societal issues that they become more more invested in in wanting to um advocate um for changes and stuff. And I think it, it shouldn't take that, it shouldn't take you experiencing when no whatever societal issue for you to be part of the change um and yeah i think i hope that answered the question that definitely did and i think when we first started articula we noticed that there was a major disconnect between youth and social justice issues and the the disconnect comes from a lack of awareness um so a lot of youth actually might not be aware of certain social justice issues, A, because they might not make the effort to, or they're just not exposed to an environment. Also because some, some issues don't directly affect them, so they're apathetic or apathetic towards the issues because of that reason. And I think one of the reasons articulate exists is to 
provide a platform where youth can raise awareness and learn more about social justice issues. And I think awareness is the first step to creating change, actually. The more aware you are, the more mindful you are of your actions. And sometimes the smallest of actions, even being polite, or if you were previously using the N-word and now you're more aware of the social background or the context behind it, you're, you're not using that. I think that's also benefiting a greater population that you might imagine. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and when it comes to awareness, I know there is um, sort of like a debate concerning Instagram and, you know, sort of using that as a platform for advocacy and activism um and sort of like the idea that it's just making people lazy in their activism which i agree like i said there's a lot of people who post infographics that they don't even take the time to read um or just posting different um you know infographics that may not even be factual and stuff and so i think the sort of balance for me is sort of okay using instagram maybe to get information about an area of different societal issues or whatever or you know issues specifically concerning anti-blackness um and misogynoir and then sort of going offline or well not let me not say offline but going off instagram and maybe doing more research in depth and then after that maybe going offline if if i can i think a lot of people just go on instagram and they stay there and their their activism and advocacy basically starts and ends on Instagram. And to me, that really isn't activism. Maybe, you you know, maybe someone might disagree. I just think that is, is, it's a very lazy form of activism. And I don't think activism should be lazy. Um, but I definitely, I do see the merit in Instagram where it's sort of helped me. Like you said, there's just so many things going on. And I think a lot of the times, like you see people who tell, who ask other other people oh why aren't you talking about this why aren't you talking about this and frankly the honest answer is people don't know people can you can't talk about a societal issue that you have no knowledge of and so i think with instagram it's helped me you know especially last summer like the amount of like like issues going on around the world that i did not know of that i learned about stuff in in turkey i think where it was like um stuff to do with sexism i think there's another thing in romania also to do with also to do with sexism um there's another, like there's just so many like there's just there's stuff happening like everywhere and um i think a lot of places that are not as big in the mainstream media like the us a lot of countries that are not as big as the us mainstream media a lot of their issues go unnoticed and do not get the sort of like international coverage as problems as problems in the us do and I feel like with Instagram, it's helped me because, you know, people, different like social justice accounts or um, activist ac accounts or um, activism accounts post um, different issues that are happening in other countries, you know, like, so you want to talk about this or um, I think that's, or impact or just different like organizations um, or Instagram accounts that are dedicated to spreading awareness about different topics. And I think... Yes, awareness is important, right? And that is the first step, but you can't end there. And so, but it is the first step. You have to start somewhere. And so I think Instagram has really helped me in sort of making it easy for me to become aware of topics. And then from there, going to do more research on, on said topics. You know, I think it, it's harder for me to go like on Google and just search of, okay, what is happening in the world? There's just so much that's happening. And I feel like 
with Google, you're going to get so many articles and websites, like where are you going to start? And I feel like with Instagram, these different accounts that post information, it's very concise and it's easier for the brain to, to process. And again, everyone's on Instagram, right? So it's definitely more accessible in that sense. And that makes it easy for you to, to become aware of what's going on. And then when you're aware of what's going on, you know, even, even in the, in, in the simplest of, 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 of terms, at least you're aware and now you can you can go do more research and learn more about it right and so i think that 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 is a good way like in terms of social media instagram i know like that's the big one but there's also stuff on twitter um and i just want to highlight the the lecky toll massacre that happened in nigeria um october 20th i think was the date um we saw that social media, Instagram and Twitter to be specific, they've helped so much with the end SARS movement in Nigeria, where people are learning about it through social media and being able to go do more research, right? A lot of African countries do not do not have or get the media coverage that the U.S. does, right? And so social media has sort of transformed the, the, the end SARS movement for Nigeria, which then, you know, basically... Um, gave light to other issues that are happening in other countries, like mine, for example, with the Anglophone crisis in Cameroon, or the the um, femicide crisis in South Africa. You know, it was sort of it, it was like a chain reaction when Nigeria like took up storm with NSARS. That um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That awareness sort of transferred to other topics, and that was great to. See see and we couldn't have done without social media we couldn't because frankly like the news media like western media does not care about african countries i don't think that needs to be said that is pretty obvious and so social media where you know um people living in nigeria nigerian citizens nigerian residents can literally like provide the rest of the world with first-hand information like primary information from living there and experiencing you know all of the brutality with the SARS. Um, in Nigeria and sort of like being able to highlight that movement and then other people seeing that I think that was just such a beautiful thing and, and I I think there is there is like there's merits to Instagram in terms of using it for activism and there's also the downsides but I don't think it's something that should be completely discarded um because it has helped tremendously with making youth aware because the thing with youth is like we're we're lazy okay like we don't like doing things that requires too much like sort of like brain power it's just easier to go on instagram than it is to go on google and read the news sort of like news section on google like it's easier to just go on instagram and so when you're on instagram and you can have these accounts that are posting all these societal issues that is great right and obviously it shouldn't end there but i think that is a great way to start and it just it's more inviting for youth and it's more um like know your audience basically right and and with the audience of youth the easiest way and the more effective way to attract them is through social media. And I think Instagram has played a tremendous role, especially last summer, with sort of making use aware of different societal issues that are happening worldwide. Yeah, definitely. Very well spoken, Glennis. I don't think I can add more to that. But uh, similar to what you said, I think um, like issues with the farmers currently um, and I'm Punjabi, and that issue might not 
you know, I might not be aware of it if it wasn't for social media. So it's a great place to start, but don't limit your options to social media. Uh, reach out, you know, try to learn more, be enthusiastic about issues. Um, I think that's the best way you can uh, create change. And so moving on to our next topic that was very well covered in your spoken word poetry, which is hierarchies within underprivileged groups. And so for a long time, Black people or other people of color have faced oppression. Um, however, within those communities, there's a prevalent theme of women being the most vulnerable. What are your thoughts and experiences about that as a woman of color yourself? Um, so when it comes to hierarchy, um, um, just like, because this, this is an honest conversation, I want to keep it honest. I, I, along with other like black people, we literally hate the term people of color, like being referred to as people of color, because, um, there is prevalent anti-blackness within every, and when I say every, I mean every, within every, um, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Non-black, also non-white group. Like, it's not just white people where anti-blackness is, is prevalent. Anti-blackness is prevalent in Asian communities, in, um, what's the other term I'm looking for? Um, Pacific, or like, Pacific Islander, I don't know. Like, basically what I'm trying to say is this anti-blackness within every group of people. And so I think so of grouping us all together as people of color, sort of um, trivializes and sort of dismisses the prevalent anti-blackness that, that is amongst every ethnic group of people. And so, and I think I get, I along with other black people, I would say, if, if, if it speaks to you, I'm not trying to speak for every black person. Like I said, I can't speak for that, but it's, it's just very like annoying and just irritating when I see non black people of color. So I've tried to say, you know, we're all going through the same thing. You know, we're all experiencing racism for white people and all of that. And I'm like, okay, yes, I will agree. Like we're all, you know, whiteness is the standard for racism. I, I would not debate that. Whiteness and white supremacy is, is the standard for everything in our world, sadly. I would not debate that. You're going through um, racism as well or oppression as well, but it's not to the same degree. And I think a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that. And it's sort of turning to sort of flip the narrative and say, oh, black people, you know, we always have to be victims and we're trying to turn into a competition. It's like, no, it's not a competition. It's the reality, right? Same way I can, I can understand, like, yes, we can all experience a problem, but you can experience a problem to different degrees, right? Someone having broken bones, okay, if you, if you break your ankle, I, w I would think that that is better than breaking, I don't know, what's a worser bone? your skull or something like you're not going to say, Oh, well, we both have broken bones, right? No, the, where those bones are broken matters. And so I think we can, we can acknowledge as non-white people that, okay, yes, we all go through some sort of racism and oppression, but it's not to the same degree, especially when you add in the fact that, like I said, there's anti-blackness in East Asian groups, in South Asian communities, in, in non-black communities and non like, communities of of color and so um it just gets really like sort of like 
frustrating when we get grouped into sort of like, oh, we're all in the same boat. Because it's like, yeah, we're maybe in the same boat, but in different levels. You know, some of us are drowning. Some of you guys are chilling. So it's not the same thing. And even within the Black community, we see that where Black women sort of calling out Black men for sort of benefiting from and participating in misogyny and sexism gets turned into, oh, we're all, we're all Black, we're all going through the same thing. But it's like, no, right? I think people do not understand how intersectionality works and sort of how, like, identities work, like, coexisting identities work. Like, you as a Black male and me as a Black female, we do not have the same experiences. We don't. Um, we may experience ra- racism together because we're Black, Right. And maybe you as a black male have a harsher sort of like um, harsher run-ins with police because you're seen as intimidating compared to a black female. Either way, like the racism is still there with black because we're black. I can agree with that. But then when it comes to our gender or sex identity or, or sex identities, you as a male and me as a female, like that's not the same thing. Right. You still participate or benefit from um, patriarchy and misogyny and sexism. And I think people, a lot of black straight men, black cis straight men sort of think that the blackness overrides the experiences of like other identities, like black women, them being black overrides the woman part, black trans people, black gay people, them being black overrides the gay part and the trans part and, you know, the the gender identities part, but it's like, it doesn't, right? I am not, people love saying, oh, I'm, and there's this narrative, oh, you're black before you're anything else, but it's like, no, I am a black woman. I exist as both those identities at the same time. One isn't coming before the other. I'm not a, a woman first before I'm black. No, I'm a black before I'm a woman. Like, it, it it exists at the same time simultaneously. Like I can't take that's what I was saying in my poetry. I can't take out the black and just be woman or take out the woman and just be black. I'm both those things at once. I'm experiencing the racism from being black and the sexism from being a woman. And I think when you try to bring up that conversation with a lot of cis cis straight black men, there is no accountability, there is no acknowledgement. It's like, oh, we're all going to the same thing. And I'm like, well. Not to be that person, but that's kind of the energy that I'm getting from people of color who say we all go through racism. And it's like, how are you going to then complain that non-black people of color say we all go through racism, but then you want to say me as a black woman and you as a black man, we all go through the same thing. No, we don't. We don't. And I think that there is, there's just so much hypocrisy where it's like, sadly, and but truthfully, a lot of black men when I say black men, again, cis, straight black men, a lot of their talking points and like mannerisms and um, what's the word I'm looking for? They like, they like, they Attitudes. borrow. Yeah. They borrow a lot of like the talking points of white people and of non-black people of color where it's like, Again, like maybe going into another route when we're talking about um, the LGBTQ plus community, right? And how all Black all Black Lives Matter was created to encompass Black women and Black LGBTQ plus people, and sort of Blacks to straight men being like, why do you need to say all Black Lives Matter? Black Lives Matter includes everybody, but it's like it doesn't. 
And they're like, yeah, it does. You guys just want to create more problems and be more divisive. I'm like, okay, let's, let me, let me agree with you. Well, white people could say us saying black lives matter has been divisive when all lives matter. Like that's, that's the same thing. And it's like, you as a black man can complain about all lives matter. And then you want to complain about us creating all black lives matter because black lives matter has not been inclusive of black women and black LGBT close people. You can't say, oh yeah, Black Lives Matter obviously includes everybody, but then at the same time you're saying all lives matter doesn't include Black people. Like, which one is it, right? There's just so much hypocrisy where it's like a lot of Black cis straight men do not see how they are reflective of the very racism and anti-Blackness and white supremacy that white people perpetuate towards um, Black women and Black LGBT close people. And I think, again, me as a Black woman, Right, I can acknowledge that I experience or will experience or I I guess I'm underprivileged being black and a woman. At the same time, though, I have the privilege of being straight and of being cis. My experience as a black woman is not the same as the experience of a black trans woman or of a black um, um, bisexual woman or a black gay woman or a black trans bisexual woman or a black trans like like it's not the same i do have a privilege of being straight and cis so i'm not gonna say oh we're both black women we're all going to the same thing no right and the statistics say otherwise right with basically when it comes to the black community the group that has experienced the most amount of deaths is black trans women like do the research like the numbers are there i think it was like the highest it's been last year like 2020 was like the worst um, amount of um, was the worst year for Black trans trans women, um, and so I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, as me being a Black woman, you know, I'm going through the exact same thing as Black trans women. No, I'm not, right? And I, as much as I, I want to fight for you know anti-Blackness, um, sorry, fight against anti-Blackness and fight against racism, I also have to fight against you know um, transphobia and homophobia. Right. You can't pick and choose and say, you know, black trans people or black gay people sort of deserve, you know, to experience anti-blackness because of their other identities. And then you want to complain when that happens to you. I just see there's a lot of hypocrisy where a lot of black cis straight people borrow talking points from white people. And I'm like, at the end of the day, yeah, it may not surround conversations about race. It may be about it may be about gender and sex, but you are still upholding white supremacy. It's just in the context of gender and sex. And I think a lot of people think those are disconnected, like gender and sex is disconnected from race, but it isn't. It isn't. We see that where it's like white males and black males. They're both males. They're both benefits of patriarchy, but again, you have the black aspect and you have the white aspect that matters as well. And so I think understanding how these different identities coexist together and work together and all these identities uphold white supremacy. And so of taking the time to use your privilege, whatever that is, whether it's you being cis, you being straight, you being white, you being a man, using that to be um to advocate for other groups of people that you benefit of their oppression from. I think that is what we need to start doing as um, black people 
or even as other people of color, right? Using your privilege as being a person of color, but not being a black person specific, specifically to advocate for black people and um, dismantle white supremacy. Because frankly, advocating for black people is advocating for all people. I think people sort of don't understand that. Um, when you dismantle anti-blackness, you dismantle um, anti-Asian rhetoric. You dismantle basically like since black people are like i'm sorry i'm trying to like rephrase this and when you look at the hierarchy system right if you dismantle the people who are at the bottom like if you dismantle the racism or whatever form of oppression that they face and those are the people that are at the bottom then that benefits everyone else right because it's like okay you're looking at the 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 the, the group that faces the most problems so if you, by you fixing their problems, quote unquote, that benefits the other groups, right? Whereas you, whereas um, dismantling, you know, anti-Asian rhetoric does not necessarily benefit me as a black person. It might, but that's not guaranteed because, like I said, there is still prevalent anti-blackness in Asian communities and other people and and other people of color groups. That's what I'm trying to say. My English is not good today. But um, I think there's sort of this competition, sadly, um, where a lot of non-Black um, people of color are sort of like upset that so much energy was given towards Black Lives Matter and that sort of like gained um, a lot of traction. And, you know, basically using that as an excuse to be <laughs> anti-Black by saying, you know, we only care about our own, you know, we're only advocating for our own. And it's like, or complaining about the fact that their issues did not get the same coverage as Black people did. But people need to understand that Black Lives Matter has been a thing since like 2006 or whenever it was created by, um, I keep forgetting a Black woman's name, I think. I think it's something Burke. The Black woman who created this movement. She created this like years ago. This just started taking some like, recently this like it didn't just happen out of nowhere there has been a lot of work and effort by black people that went into getting the black lives matter, black lives matter movement where it is today right and so i don't understand why other groups of people were sort of like you know looking at black people and saying why are we not spreading the issues that they're going through but it's like you guys are not spreading your issues you cannot advocate for issues that are going on in your community and then get mad at black people for coming together and, you know, advocating for the issues that are going on in our community and that taking storm. And then basically wanting us to come and then spread your, what is going on in your communities when you are not doing the work, do the work, right? As a black person, you know, you have to be an ally, right? I cannot advocate for anti-blackness and then support, you know, um, um, anti-Semitism, right? That does not work. But you cannot look at me or look at Black people and expect us to basically advocate for everybody because our movement took storm when you guys are not doing the work. And then use that as an excuse to be anti-Black by saying we only care about ourselves. We think we're the only ones who go through issues. Like, I don't, like, the, the way I was just so disheartened by the just... And I'm not saying that this was everybody, of course not, but it was a lot. It was a lot of non-black people 
we're using the fact that the Black Lives Matter movement gained so much traction as an excuse to be even more anti-Black. And I'm like, how are you upset at us? Right? And that the move that the movement took store as if we haven't been putting in the work. As if this this just happened overnight. This is like we've been talking about Black Lives Black Lives Matter for years. When Tamir Rice happened, when Philando Castle happened, Philando Castle, that was 2016. Tamia Rice, I think that was like 2014 or something. Like this has been happening for years. You know, you had the Ferguson riots in 2015 after Michael Brown. Like this has been happening for years. This isn't just something that just like sparked. This is a movement that has been happening, that has been gaining traction over time for years. It's been very slow, right? And unfortunately, it had to take what happened to George Floyd for everything to blow up. But non-black people of color need to understand that that took years and unfortunately many black people dying for that to happen and so instead of you sort of being an ally you know and sort of joining the movement and advocating alongside black people to dismantle anti-blackness and sort of being happy that the movement is finally getting the traction it, it deserves because that then like I said, benefits other marginalized groups as well. Instead, it was a lot of non-Black people of color who sort of used that as an excuse to say we're being selfish, you know, with the attention that we're receiving. And so, and I, I, I don't think they understood how that mentality is creating a competition between us and that doesn't do anything to dismantle the white supremacy that we're all trying to do. And so I think a lot of people claim to be allies, but they're really not. And I, frankly, I'm so tired of the word allies. I know I've said that a lot, but there was so much conversation about allyship over the summer and people just not knowing what the word means. And people thinking that them posting black squares was being an ally or posting infographics as being an ally. And it's like, no. And so I think there needs to be a lot more collaboration within the black community and a lot more um, accountability within the black community a lot more conversation about intersectionality because a lot of people do not understand what that means and how that works. And, and the fact that you can be, you can belong to underprivileged groups and also belong to privileged groups. I think there needs to be a lot of education around that. And also um, um, within different um, ethnic groups, I think there also needs to be the acknowledgement that we are not all going through the same thing to the same degree. And that we all have our privileges, even though we are all sort of in in scale, we are all the fact that we're not white, we are still, you know, quote unquote being oppressed or part of the opp oppressed group. But within that group, there still exists privileges and there still exists hierarchies. And I think there needs to be a lot of conversation about that because a lot of people are not being um honest and authentic with their advocacy. Sorry for the rant. <laughs> No, we love your rants. That was very informative and very, uh, and thank you very much for your insight, really. Um, it also made me learn a lot about, you know, how the Black Lives Movement started and what it's truly intended for. Um, and as a member of like a South Asian community, 
um, I think sexism and like colorism especially is very common. Um, I think a lot of Asian communities would agree this colorism is a very common problem that we all face with lightning creams that are just, you know, blowing off the market daily. Do you think, and I want to pick up this um, word that you kept bringing up, which is anti-blackness. Do you think it's more, do you think colorism is a form of anti-blackness or do you think that's more of like a cultural phenomenon? Okay, there we go. I think it is part of anti-blackness. I, I think this this saying that a lot of black people say where colorism is like the sister, the sister of racism or something, because it all stems from the same thing, right? Maybe um, with colorism, a lot of the times it's within the same um, ethnic group. You know, that's that's sort of different than where racism, where it's like within, you know, different ethnic groups or anti-blackness where it's within black communities and other ethnic groups. Colorism is more so within that ethnic group. But it's sort of the same idea with racism where it's like blackness is still associated as being bad or as being undesirable. And so even like I know you mentioned the South Asian community where it's like, yeah, you guys are not black, but again, darker skinned um, um, Southeast Asians are seen as not desirable, right? Is that it's, it's still that same aspect of you having darker skin, even if it's not necessarily black, you having darker skin is bad, right? Unfortunately, with black people, it's like our skin is, you know, I mean, black people come in different shades and stuff, but again, in terms of like the dark skin, you already have that. Right. So it's like it, that's that, that's just bad. But within like different groups, like the South Asian community, it's still it's still the same idea where it's like darker skin is bad. And so I think a lot of people try to separate um, colorism from racism. I say, you know, it's not the same thing, but I'm like, it's not exactly the same thing, but it is the same thing. Like it's of it. They both work to uphold white supremacy. They both work to uphold white whiteness as the standard as the standard of beauty as the standard of everything they both work they work in different ways but they essentially both have the same goal and i think i'm glad that you brought up the conversation of colorism i i i regretted forgetting that because that is such a prevalent topic in the black community as well and where we see dark skin which is why i captioned my poem specifically dark skin black women because again there's still the conversation of where within the black community within black women there is still that hierarchy where it's like if you're a dark-skinned black woman you are um you know less desirable and you're more susceptible to misogynoir which is just basically misogyny aimed at black women um you're more susceptible to that than if you were a lighter-skinned woman right sort of this idea where it's like um whiteness or proximity to whiteness i should say is desirable is seen as feminine is is seen as sort of like womanly in a sense like you sort of having the um attributes or characteristics of a woman or of being feminine you know soft tender delicate um we see this with um what's her name i don't want to bring her up but lana del rey um when she had her old spill some time ago in the summer calling out all these um female artists um they were singers rappers and stuff 
um, a lot of which were women of color. I think only Ariana Grande was the only woman that was white. The rest of them were women of color. Um, a lot of them being black. And she's basically calling them out and basically positioning herself as being delicate and being soft and tender and sort of insinuating that these women were not. And, you know, I'm not surprised that she did it because it's, it's become a very reoccurring theme where black women or and especially darker skinned black women are seen as being strong. That's why we have the strong black woman trope. Um, are seen as not being soft or delicate or then or, or tender and um, not feminine enough, and so colorism does does play a role into that for sure. And I think you cannot be a colorist and then want to sort of advocate for um, anti racism. You cannot want to not um, you know uphold racism or white supremacy. But then at the same time, you're a colorist and you're basically saying, oh, if you're a darker skinned black woman or if you're a darker skinned South Asian woman, then you are less feminine than a lighter skinned black woman or a lighter skinned um, South Asian woman. Like those two are not making sense. And I think there's a lot of black people, especially, who are guilty of um, a lot of black men. I, I should say black women too, so at least. Um, but there's a lot of black people who are guilty of associating darker skin with less desirable and skin that is light. You know, the light skin, as they love to say, or the biracial or the mixed or the um, racially ambiguous, associating that, you know, with being beautiful. And all of those things have proximity to whiteness. You having dark black skin, you have no proximity whiteness. And I think separating colorism from racism, as if those are like, you know, two separate things that are so far apart and, and not understanding that, yes, there may be two different concepts, but they're both concepts of the same idea, which is white supremacy. Um, I think that is something that a lot of people are, have yet to understand. Um, and... Um, yeah, and just sort of be aware about and have like knowledge knowledge about. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was very informative as well, and definitely I agree with all, everything you've said so far. You know, colorism also stems from this idea of white supremacy, and they're not, or racism and colorism are not exactly segregated from each other. They're very much combined, and you know, work hand in hand. Um, so I want to ask you this one last question before we end our podcast today, uh, which is, uh, you're an activist yourself, and what do you think change might look like in relation to social justice issues, and any advice you have for people tuned into our podcast today? Okay, thank you for the question. Um... I think, again, like I go back to 2020 summer because that was just a very informative and eye-opening and very just transformative summer for me. Um, and so I hope um, changing relation to social justice issues, I hope it, um, I'm going to say I hope, I think. I think, I'm trying to find my words here. Um I think we're going to see a lot more and we, and we are seeing that already to be honest. Um, but just a lot more action from youth 
I think a lot of people, a lot of adults underestimate um, youths and just how powerful they can be. And sort of this idea of us not having enough wisdom, you know? And yeah, you know, maybe, you know, there's this idea of, you know, the older you are, the wiser, but not necessarily. There's a lot of old people who lack wisdom and there's a lot of young people who are very wise for their age. And so I think just given the way last summer went, um, I think there is going to be, and there has been just a lot more youths involved in um, social justice advocacy. Um, I also think um, social media is going to play and has already been playing a much bigger role, but I think that role is only going to get bigger. Um, And I think... I also think on the on the downside, sadly, there's just going to be a lot of people becoming lazy and sort of using the term social justice advocacy very loosely and, you know, activism very loosely and calling themselves activism and calling what they're doing as activism when they're not. Um, so I think that is definitely going to be a downside. But on the, on the brighter side, I think we're going to see just a lot more, um, a lot more of an audience for worldwide issues that do not get the amount of coverage that um, issues in Western countries do, like I said, especially with NSARS, you know, that I was very happy to see just a lot of Nigerians sort of like um, be outspoken about that. And even I, I would like to shout out the, there was, I forgot his name, but um, there was this black queer Nigerian man who, you know, um, sort of went viral in a sense because, you know, he was speaking up against the NSARS movement and he was also sort of speaking up against the homophobia and transphobia and just um, the lack of, of um, conversation when it comes about, when it comes to queerness in Africa in general, but also specifically in Nigeria where he's from. And he sort of used his platform to advocate against, you know, um, you know, to advocate against and you know against SARS and advocate for and SARS, but also simultaneously um, transferred the the what's the word the traction that he received towards advocating for another issue, right? Which is queerness in Nigeria, and um, I think that was a very beautiful thing to see, you know, and it was very brave of him as well, you know. I can't imagine the horror of being, you know, not straight in any African country. Um, And I think we're seeing more African countries, you know, sort of legalize um, gay marriages and put an effort to dismantle um, homophobia and other forms of, you know, sort of like anti-queerness. And I think that is a lot of that change. we We owe that to a lot of young people right um and we owe that to social media as well giving people a platform i think um social media is going to play a very big role in the future when it comes to social justice and i've already said there's going to be downsides to that but i think i think there's going to be a lot of merits and sort of giving a voice to different movements that are not gaining traction and different people maybe going through issues that are not gaining traction. I see this even on, on, on Twitter where you, I see people posting GoFundMes and 
for different people that need money for different reasons or are going through um, different societal issues. And so I've been able to use Twitter as a way to spread that GoFundMe and be able to get people their money literally in a manner in a, in a matter of days, being able to raise funds for people. That's such a beautiful thing to see. And I think social media has definitely helped and will definitely play a tremendous role in bridging the gaps between people. And so I've been able to connect people on an international level, intercontinental, intercontinental level even, um, and just sort of create a, create a worldwide community where me being in Canada does not limit me. And I'm able to be aware of issues that are happening in, like I said, Romania and Turkey and be able to help somebody in, I don't know, somewhere in in, in Asia and be able to donate to all different kinds of people and all different kinds of movements and funds and, you know, not just limit my change and my advocacy to just Canada. And so I, I think there is going to be definitely a more inter- international um, cooperation amongst people, especially youths, when it comes to um, social justice, um, advocacy and activism. Any advice for people tuned in? Um, I would say if you if if you're if you're feeling, I would say this first of all. There's there's many different ways to advocate. Do not feel pressure to be to be um vocal on social media. You know, you don't necessarily have to be right. You can. A lot of people, like I said, a lot of people who are vocal on social media are not doing so for the right reasons. You know, and are not genuine about it. So do not feel pressure to be vocal on social media just because you see other people being vocal about it. Like I've said, do it because you actually want to and you actually believe in what you're doing. I think I think that is my my like most important advice is do it for the right reasons. And again, like understand that you don't have to do it online. You can do stuff offline. Petitions, donations, reading, researching, movies, documentaries, like there's so many things you can do offline. And I think do not feel like your activism is sort of trivial or less important or useless because other people are not taking notice of it on social media or seeing it or, you know, being aware of it. You know, you're not doing this for other people to see. Your your activism should not be for other people to see. It's it's nice if people see that, right? Because then other people can become aware right? And then more people help and, you know, other people can sort of feel motivated to help, right? That That's great. But again, like you should not do it because you want to, like, you feel like you not posting it on social media um, minimalizes the effort that you're putting into for change. You know, as long as you're putting in that effort, genuine effort, and you're not being lazy and you're actually putting in the work, whether that's offline or online, I think that 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 still matters and one does not outweigh the other and um people can still get motivated to be part of advocacy and activism even if even not online if that makes sense um and so don't feel like you doing stuff online is going to have sorry you doing your your advocate advocacy or activism offline is going to have a lesser impact um because it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't, it's, it's going to have an impact and be confident in your, in your, um, your desire for change and be confident in your 
willingness to advocate for change and be confident that people who come across your advocacy or activism offline will be motivated um, and just be confident in the work that you do, have faith in the work that you're doing and be optimistic, right? I think optimism is a very powerful thing. Um, a lot of, um, when it comes to the conversation, conversation about oppression and, and liberation, optimism is very important. I think when it comes a lot of um, conversation around the oppressors, quote unquote, they want the groups that are being oppressed, the people that are being oppressed to not have hope. So accept that this is how things are going to be. You know, this is just the way the world is. You know, racism is going to exist forever. We're not going to be able to get rid of that. You know, why people are forever going to be the standard. Like it is what it is. I think that is the mentality that a lot of people want us to have. A lot of people, that's the mentality that a lot of white people want black people to have and non-black people of color to have. And I think optimism is a very, is a very powerful thing. I think People having hope of change, even if it's not anytime soon, just having hope that change is going to come can be a very motivating thing and sort of give you peace because you're you're only one person. There's only so much change that you can do. You can't change, not that you can't change the world, you know, maybe you can, but you are just one person. It's going to take time for you to get rid of things like racism or sexism or any other societal issue. So have faith in the work that you're doing, that it's going to pay off, even if it's not in your lifetime. Um, yeah, so just be optimistic, be genuine, and, um, and what's another? Keep going. I'm trying to, like, be concise. Yeah, so be optimistic, be genuine, and um, be reflective. Yeah. Be introspective. That's another thing. Like really think about, okay, am I posting this? Like, is it actually going to be helpful? Is this actually factual? Like, is there like sources listed where I put my, like, just be very reflective of the information that you circulate. Cause a lot of people be, are circulating information that is just incorrect. So yeah, I, I would say that is my most prevalent, like, topics for advice or whatever i feel like i'm going on in a ramble i'm so sorry that's completely okay um and i definitely agree and i can vouch for you know all the things you've said because articulate started with just two people and look at us now you know we didn't give up hope and there are certainly times when we're like our efforts are not creating any change whatsoever and we're just you know doing it for no reason because it's not affecting anybody but you will see the results you know these issues have been going on for generations they don't take a day to fix and they shouldn't take a day to fix because of something that has been a problem for like decades um it will take some time to go. And so we try every day. We, you know, you if you have a bad day, you just, you know, try again next day and it'll be better, I promise. And we've reached the end of our podcast. So Glennis, if you have any final remarks and if you want to drop your social media <laughs> for people, um, please do so. Um, I have no final remarks. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast and that it was informative and you were able to take something from it, anything. Um, I hope you enjoyed the poem. Like I've said, if you want to like read it, um, it's on the Articulate website. I'm not sure how it works, but like you can you can find it. You'll be able to find it. It's very easy to navigate. Um, also, my social media, um, my Instagram is Glennis01. 
So if you want to follow me, you can do that. It's public. Um, and I will also like post, sometimes I post my poems here and there. Um, and I will post like, um, like the poem that I just recited, I will post it on my Instagram and save it in like a highlight where I put all of my poems. Um, if you want to access it there as well. And thank you, Bambi, for having me. And I'm really happy that we were able to have this discussion and, you know, just spark some sort of like, you know, intuitive thinking or whatever. And um, I, I I hope that you also took something from this as well. <laughs> and um, yeah, I hope you guys watching are not too bored and <laughs> can appreciate my rambling. And yeah, thank you for having me. Well, I definitely learned a lot. Thank you, Glennis. Um, as always, you can check out Articulate on our Instagram page, which is articulate.initiative. And you can also check out our website at articulateinitiative.org. That's articulateinitiative.org. Uh, until then, have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you.